What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, the Hungry Trends community sat down with Rishi Nigam, co-founder and CEO of Franklin Junction, a marketplace of licensed brands like Fuku Milk Bar and Nathan's Famous, and enterprise restaurant host kitchens that fulfill orders for delivery. In this episode, we'll chat about how the platform identifies new opportunities for CPG and restaurant brands to scale delivery into new markets, how the economics work amongst the various partners, and the technology it leverages to unlock incremental sales. All right, I'm very excited to be joined today by Rishi Nigam. He is the co-founder and CEO of Franklin Junction, a virtual brand platform that helps scale concepts like Fuku, Milk Bar, and Nathan's Famous through its global network of host kitchens. Prior to Franklin Junction, Rishi held roles in sports and hospitality, serving as VP at NASCAR, as well as Director of Operations at Airmark Sports and Entertainment. Rishi, welcome aboard. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. I've been following you for a while, so uh, very excited to speak with you. Yeah, likewise. You know, I usually have all guests kind of go at the top and talk us through a little bit at a high level of your background and how you kind of got to where you are in co-founding Franklin Junction. So my background, uh, Matt, I go back about 23 years in this industry. I started on the culinary side as a teenager and did that through college, working in restaurants and bars, and then had a really unique opportunity to go work in sports entertainment, as you mentioned, running concessions, hospitality, and retail uh, businesses in Major League Ballparks, NFL, NBA. And then that led me to an opportunity with NASCAR. And I spent many, many years with NASCAR rebuilding our hospitality experience and the whole food and beverage offerings at NASCAR tracks nationwide. What that gave me an opportunity to do was really see a lot of different kitchen formats and basically work with about 100 different brands around the country as we took restaurant brands and put them in these non-traditional environments. Hmm. That's kind of where the idea for Franklin Junction really started taking shape for me is where we saw that you know existing restaurants today were not capitalizing on their kitchen capacity. But we know a kitchen's a kitchen and, you know, there's opportunity to maximize that capacity using the same equipment, but selling food for another brand. So in theory, sounds really good. We needed to wait for some of the logistics side to catch up, right, for Uber and DoorDash and these guys to grow because the only way for us to sell food for a different brand was through delivery. Once that started catching up, then the idea for Franklin Junction really started taking shape. It's like, okay, now we have the kitchens. We have a way to get the food to customers. We have brands that want to grow. How do we make all of that come together? And so Franklin Junction became the platform that creates the match, helps with order management, the marketing, the supply chain, the operations training, the accounting, everything that makes that whole process work. Fascinating. I I love how you kind of this insider track on, you know, like the primitive form of a ghost kitchen, essentially, just through, you know, various stadiums that you were working in and Airmark kitchens and, and those sorts of things. I'm curious about this term host kitchen, which I, I think you guys have trademarked. You know, there's this debate over like kitchens that are 100% ghost kitchens. And then there's this versus, you know, using the existing network of, of what's out there uh, on the market right now. W- where do you, I mean, obviously know where you probably stand on this, but just help us think through where do ghost kitchens fit in? Where do host kitchens fit in? 
And how much underutilized capacity is out there in the U.S. right now, would you estimate? Yeah, complex question. So I'll try to break that up into a few pieces. The first is having been restaurateurs our whole lives, you know, we look at the economics of building a restaurant. And to me, the ghost kitchen business is building new infrastructure. So from a macro factor, you're competing against existing restaurants. You're not necessarily helping existing restaurants, right? We wanted to help existing restaurants. The economics of a ghost kitchen weren't very sound to us. I mean, there may be some applications for it, but not widespread throughout the country and in every market. It's probably not going to work. And that's why I think you've seen a lot of ghost kitchens go from delivery only to pickup and delivery. And now many of them offer on-premises sales, which, correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong, but that's a restaurant, right? So, so, yes. so, so I think there's that. So thoughtfully, what we were thinking of is we wanted to empower current restaurants to have better economics by using that kitchen space. So that's why we thought an evergreen term for this would be host kitchen. Uh, it would be a, an, a restaurant that already exists with a primary business, but could host another brand. And so we did get the trademark for the word host kitchen. That maybe explains that model. Mm. On the flip side of it, we own the trademark for uh, a word called cloud concepts. And these are concepts that exist in the cloud and don't necessarily have to build brick and mortar anywhere. How we choose to do it is partner with existing brands that have some degree of brick and mortar, but then use the host kitchens as an expansion opportunity. So our two-sided marketplace is host kitchens, who serve as Franklin Junction's fulfillment centers, and then cloud concepts, who are basically our content partners. They give us the concepts that we can license and then can distribute throughout the country. When you ask about how much existing capacity is out there, I think that's um, it's a tricky question. I would say that there is unlimited amount of capacity. Otherwise, restaurants would not be trying to increase their sales. They wouldn't be doing limited time offers. They wouldn't be introducing new menu items. So I think there's always some level of capacity. The mm. secret sauce is figuring out what is that capacity and where does that capacity exist? And at what point do you actually get incremental profits? versus diminishing returns. And that's where we really specialize as we go in and actually evaluate what is the optimal existing capacity and then how do we monetize that for our host kitchen partners. Really fascinating. I, I, I really want to dive in on kind of both sides of the marketplace. I guess starting out with, I guess you would call it the supply side, right? Which is the brands. How many are these of these brands are 100% virtual concepts that don't have any provenance in brick and mortar? And how many are traditional brands like we know Nathan's Famous, Milk Bar, Fugu to some extent, which is kind of pivoted to all virtual, but um, started physical. How, how many of these are known restaurant brands looking to expand without over, you know, a significant amount of overhead? And how many of them are just pure, purely dreamt up as, as virtual concepts? Yeah. Quick correction. I would say the host kitchen side is a supply side, right? Because that's the excess restaurants. The demand side would be these, what from a consumer perspective, these brands that they want to see in their neighborhood or want to get the access to that food. Sure. Um, yeah, I would say uh, 95% or greater are proven brands. That's our model. We don't really necessarily go after creating virtual concepts or the celebrity brands. Um, and I say 95% because we have done some white label brands for other, you know, like CPG partners, for example, 
We created a wing brand because we had some really big sauce partners who wanted to debut their sauces, maybe test some markets out. So we've worked with McCormick's and Frank's Red Hot and now Sweet Baby Ray's and Ken's. And so these are folks that they're like, hey, you guys have the host kitchens, you have the expertise. Um, We want to debut some of our new sauces and test the markets. Can we work with you on wings and tenders and stuff? So, So we've done some white label stuff like that, that I would say are virtual brands, but primarily these are all known brands. Uh, You mentioned many of our partners, Nathan's Famous, Fuku, Milk Bar. Uh, We got a great Indian concept out of Chicago called the Cumin Bowl and recently just brought Hooters on board. So we're excited about that one too. Uh, But we've got about 25 of those. So Hooters is on the demand side, right? Yeah, that's correct. So it's really fascinating. So it's like Hooters food being cooked out of some other large chains, you know, concepts. Like, I guess, how do you get restaurant operators comfortable with this concept of, uh, I guess it's it's just, you know, delivery franchising, but, you know, this idea that this is not going to look like, this is not going to come from your store, right? This is going to come from someone else's kitchen with their own operating procedures, how do you go about getting them comfortable with that concept? And uh, I guess it would be also interesting to hear how you kind of co-create this IP with them that allows them to, to license it out. Yeah. So I, there's a lot of value put on, I guess, the level of scrutiny that we have on our host kitchens, right? Like these are strong operators. These are existing brick and mortar kitchens. They're licensed operations. They're trained chefs working there. There's built-in supply chain there. There's safety controls. So when you think about all of those things, this is actually a much more attractive avenue for a brand to grow with than to go build a brick, uh, excuse me, a ghost kitchen or something from scratch or look at a temporary operation. So I think this actually presents a lot more attractive opportunity because they can relate to it. They're like, well, that's how we build restaurants. And if we can do it, other restaurants can do it. The second is, I think it's an unparalleled growth opportunity. Um, The markets that we've been able to take our brands to, some of these are 50, 60, 80, 100-year-old brands that have never been able to penetrate these markets across America, let alone internationally. And so I don't think that you can rival the opportunity we present. So yeah, you have to let go a little bit of vanity and say, how can we adjust our menus and our supply chain and our processes to make this easy to execute? And for a lot of restaurants, I think, and and brand partners, I think that's very difficult to do. And I think they lean on us uh, for that expertise. So Franklin Junction is almost taking more of a consultative approach rather than a selling approach. We're not saying, oh, hey, sign up and we can do this. It's like, if you're interested in this, we will help you develop that. So whether you're a host kitchen or a brand, we become your e-commerce partner and help you grow in this virtual world and, and, and optimize your operation uh, to succeed. So how, how does that work? As for, let's, you know, for example, like a Nathan's Famous, are you creating new kind of joint ventures with these brands to kind of carve out a whole new franchise, like a new licensing model for them? Or are they doing this under their existing franchise infrastructure? And and how do you go about paring down their menus to make it work in this new kind of format? Yeah, it is a unique model, um, but it's not a JV. We are licensing the brands for non-traditional development, so to speak, because we're not out there putting up signs or building brick and mortar. Um, so we're licensing the IP 
Um, we're getting access to the supply chain and proprietary products, and then we're marketing it. So we control the marketing on channels like third-party delivery and maybe search engine optimization and things like that. We're still working with the brands then obviously to promote new locations on their social media and things like that. So there is a bit of a collaboration there, but we do license the IP and Franklin Junction is a license holder. Mm. We don't further sub-license or franchise a brand. We're not a broker. Uh, it is actually our sale and we continue to manage that business. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Matt, what was the second part of your question there? Yeah. I mean, I think you answered it, you know, it was basically, yeah, okay, okay. you know, looking at how you how you kind of do structure these kinds of deals um and oh yeah the, the second part was like how do you pare down the menu you know oh, right, to make right. it work in and then in, in for delivery versus a traditional franchise which would just be you know yeah. kind of copy pasting the menu from brick and mortar yeah that's right i think a lot of that has to do with our concept selection so um, contrary to popular belief we don't go out and just sell to brands and say hey join franklin junction it's actually a very rigorous process on the brand side too to find what brands are going to be ones that are distributable and easy to execute so when we're looking at a brand we're looking for food that i think is craveable we're looking for brands that we can work with to um, distill down to the essence of the brand. Like, for example, we're working with Nathan's Famous. You wouldn't go to Nathan's Famous and order a chicken salad, right? I'm sure they could make a good <laughs> one, but that's not what we think about. We think about hot dogs and burgers and cheesesteaks and good old American food made at, at high execution levels. And so we're trying to deliver um, the essence of that. So we, we distill down that menu. And then we really focus on the supply chain side and say, what are the items that are we going to be able to offer all the same toppings and variations of these items that you would get at the Nathan's Famous restaurant? No, but let's focus on the 80-20 rule, right? In the restaurant business, 80% of the, of the revenues are driven by 20% of the menu. We really try to get that 20% into a virtual format, and, and that's how we create the cloud concept version of a brand. Very fascinating. And for a, com a concept like Milk Bar, I'm assuming you were looking more at just literally micro fulfillment of an existing product that's been cooked in a commissary already and it's already prepackaged and it's just a matter of, you know, selling a glass of milk with it or, you know, basically just forward deploying it to, to a last mile courier. Is that correct? Yeah, you just made me hungry for cookies and milk, but that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not baking cakes or making ice cream fresh, you know, mm. where Milk Bar has some great commissaries and folks that are making these items as fresh as possible and then getting them to our host kitchens for micro-fulfillment. And you're right, we may be adding milk and things like that that go well with, with the Milk Bar menu. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me a lot of like what Unilever's been able to successfully build through these like freezers that they kind of drop into uh, various convenience stores and gas stations where they can get really close to the end consumer and, you know, kind of pioneer this this model for the food industry to, you know, really get things on, to you on demand at a certain price point. You know, obviously it's not going to work for Colgate who's give, give you a, a single razor or something, but it'll work better with the right AOVs of, you know, birthday cake or a dozen cookies or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And, and then kind of digging in on the supply side, I, I know you, you know, your co-founder um, is from NRD Capital, if I'm not mistaken. And NRD owns Bob's Big Boy Frisch, Fuzzies and Captain Boyle, which I don't know how many restaurants that constitutes, but that's 
quite a decent number of locations in the U.S. Can you talk about like that network, how big it is, and then maybe who else you have kind of on the kitchen side who you've kind of vetted through this network? Sure. So, yeah, Aziz is the founder and um, managing partner of NRD Capital, who does own many restaurant companies as well as other other businesses. And so we do work with some of the NRD partners, but Franklin Junction is independent of NRD. So it's not like we work with all of those companies. Frisch's Big Boy is a good example of somebody who is a host kitchen on our platform, and they were actually our first client. So we signed Frisch's Big Boy. We started implementing other brands in there, such as Nathan's Famous, and uh, and then helped them grow their revenues. We continue to focus on small to mid-sized restaurant chains. I think those are ideal host partners for us. We need some balance of scale with also being small enough to be nimble and adapt quickly and get to market quickly. So we find these small to mid-sized regional chains to be ideal for us. Over the past six months, we've also expanded into hotels. Um, These are full-service hotels with large commissaries and full culinary teams. We've gotten into family entertainment centers, uh, grocery stores, and, and other businesses like that. So I think we've proven that anybody that has a kitchen could become a Franklin Junction host kitchen. Really fascinating. Yeah, I totally forgot about like all the other kitchens that con- you know are made up in hospitality that I'm sure you, you saw earlier on in your career at NASCAR and Aramark. So that's really fascinating. A- approximately how many brands would one of these host kitchens take on out of that portfolio you have? Our average is three right now. But it can vary, right? We can fine-tune by location. So if we have a 200-unit restaurant chain as a host kitchen partner, some locations may have one or two, depending on the capacity available, and others may be able to take on four or more. And especially when you look at some of our hotel partners, they can take on a larger quantity just based on you know, the amount of capacity they have available. Got it. You know, I, I want to kind of dive in, and I don't know what you can tell us about how this all works economically, but there's a lot of players that are involved in making these transactions happen, these incremental virtual brand transactions. So if we take a typical order, you know, from, from what I've studied, you know, maybe 55% of the, the order value goes to the restaurant who has to pay a distributor for the food costs, right? Which is typically about a third or so. So they're left with like a net profit, assuming no incremental labor, of something around a quarter of the check. And then you have the demand side with Franklin Junction, which would take, typically, if we look at like a next bite or some of these other players, they take about 45%. They got to pay 20, 25% in commissions. So now they're left with 20% and they didn't really have to go and license out any IP because they developed it in-house or maybe they got a celebrity involved. So they have... That's their kind of licensing fee. But that's that's a lot of players right there. You have the host kitchen, the distributor that they have to pay for the food. You have the tech company, which I would say is like you guys in this case, which is facilitating the connection between host kitchens and brands. And then you have the IP holder, which is the fourth player. And then you have the fifth player as the delivery marketplaces. So there's five people that need to get paid in that kind of transaction How is there enough room here for everyone to kind of take their cut here? So 
I don't think that there's a whole lot of variation in the host kitchen model. I think you're going to find pretty much everybody is somewhere there in that revenue split. If you look at it from the perspective of the host kitchen, the restaurant that is making the food, I believe they need to win, right? They need to make more money than everybody for this to be successful. If we can manage our food costs in that 25 to 30% range, which is kind of industry average for non-alcohol you know, menus, the host kitchen is still making a healthy 20 to 25% profit margin on every sale. I don't know most restaurants that have a four-wall EBITDA of 20 to 25%. So I think it's still a highly compelling um, opportunity for them. The other thing is if you're a restaurant and you sell a particular menu, what I call share of stomach, right? There's only there's 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 a share of stomach, meaning it you have your market that you're selling to. Let's call it a three mile radius. There's only two ways to grow your sales. Either you find a better way to keep selling the product that you have with your native concept, the sign that's on your front door, or you start selling some concept and stealing some business away from other cuisines that are around you or other competitors or different types of restaurants that are around you. So you have to figure out a way to grow share of stomach in your market if you're going to grow your sales. And I think that's what we provide. On the opposite side of that, you asked about profitability and how much is left. Well, Franklin Junction, yes, we're paying delivery partners and we're paying you know brands and we're doing marketing and we have technology costs and all that. But that is the cost of doing business for a marketplace, right? We are built on scale. As we scale up, there is opportunity for um, profitability for Franklin Junction too. But in the growing stages, you're right. It's narrow. It's thin. There's a lot of reinvestment in building all of that. But um, ultimately, the host kitchens are winning and the consumers are winning. And that's what you need to make the consumer any consumer product business work. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I have to imagine there's going to be some consolidation here. And my latest thinking is that this is a kind of a a weird idea, but like that Cisco or U.S. Foods is going to buy someone like Franklin Junction or NextBite or Accelerate or one of these players. Do you think that that's a crazy idea? No, I don't. I think there's a tremendous amount of peripheral businesses in the food service industry that see this as a great opportunity. I think it could be a supplier. It could be a delivery company. It could be somebody that's not in food service now and sees this as a way to get in through the e-commerce side. So you may see other e-commerce companies that are not currently in food service introduce themselves by potentially acquiring or investing in one of these companies. So yeah, I, I think you're on the right track. I do think that this presents a great opportunity for a lot of people to um, get into restaurants. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's no doubt that all these sales are incremental, right? I mean, it's not like putting your existing brand online and saying, hmm, I wonder how many people are ordering from, you know, who are ordering on DoorDash who used to come and pay full freight at the store, right? It's There's no doubt that all of these sales are incremental. Well, I think that's completely arguable. I would say that if you, you know, if you sell burgers and then you create another burger brand or you're a bar and you create a wing brand, that there probably is a significant amount of cannibalization. Um, mm. I think people focus a little too much on cross utilization of ingredients versus um, investing in launching a, a concept that's significantly different than what they already do. So I think it's measurable when we bring it and we can say, well, unarguably we're increasing sales because we're bringing a concept that you don't have. Even if you create your own hot dog brand, you're not going to rival what Nathan's Famous can do for your restaurant, right? So, but if you're just saying, well, I don't want to spend the money with Franklin Junction and I don't want, you know, I don't want to have Nathan's Famous name. I'll create my own 
hot dog brand because I sell hot dogs already, I think you're going to have a hard time arguing that those are purely incremental sales. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I guess the takeaway there is, you know, get, you know, if you're a burger joint, do a salad concept and vice versa, try a different category in a new geography, basically. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And and that brands matter. I think people want access to brands and they want right. they want to touch something different, you know, and something new that they've heard of. Um, they're not just looking for sustenance. Totally. And kind of on that thread of consolidation, we have a new player that, you know, you've partnered with, is which is DeliverAct, um, who is also calling themselves a virtual brand marketplace. And we had Zong on the podcast a few weeks ago um, and really love what they're doing. But it seems very similar to, to what you guys have built, right? They're they have uh, 25,000 or so restaurants across the world. They want to, which are essentially host kitchens in and of themselves. They want to find various uh, IP holders, whether it's Pop2 or Peckwater brands in the UK and you guys now. So it's it's like a, you, you're, it's becoming one more la- layer of meta um, <laughs> as far as this whole meta marketplace. H- how do you view them in the ecosystem? Yeah, so DeliverX has been a great partner to us and I have a great relationship with the team over there, Zong and, and others. And uh, they serve in our tech stack as an integration partner. So they help us connect to all the different delivery companies. There's an aspect of that that we already do domestically, but because Franklin Junction has presence in other countries and DeliverX is so tied in all over the world, they ended up becoming a really good one-stop you know, connection for us connecting the delivery companies mm. all over the world. Um, so as we expand, we, we've we got that level figured out, right? We don't have to go tie into different delivery companies all over the place. And then the other benefit is the point of sale side, right? Like we don't have mm. to go and integrate with point of sales as we right. sign up new host partners. We can use the Deliverect connections to do that. I think, you know, I don't want to speak for Zong and, and Deliverect, but at least the way that we understand it is their virtual brand marketplace is not Deliverect getting into Franklin Junction sandbox. It's them figuring out how can they create value for partners on different sides, right? They've got a bunch of restaurant partners all over the world. How can they create incremental value for people that are using the Deliverect platform? If a Deliverect restaurant partner wants to become a host kitchen for Franklin Junction, they can go through the Deliverect marketplace and connect to Franklin Junction, but you're still doing a relationship with Franklin Junction, right? So they're more serving as like a B2B platform than they are getting into creating virtual brands or operating or getting involved with all of the day-to-day stuff. That's still us. So we partnered with Deliverect um, to continue expanding our UK business. We have a um, a great operating partner there with various brands, and and we've been doing really well there in the London area. And we want to continue expanding in the UK. And uh, we thought that this would be a good opportunity to explore uh, the Deliverect virtual brand marketplace and expand there. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking at your website. It says that you're in over ten countries. Yeah, can you just talk briefly about like what continents you're covering? the various trends you're seeing across these markets and how those partners are kind of varying in the sense of like, is there just as much demand for Nathan's hot dogs in the UK or the Middle East as there is here? Or do you have to kind of license something completely new or is everything kind of centralized here and just distributed globally? 
No, it's extremely challenging. And again, that's, it's extremely difficult to get product from Atlanta to 30 miles outside of Atlanta sometimes. So, so getting product all over the world is a whole nother layer of complexity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say that I think um, because our model is very asset light and it's based on, I guess, more IP of how we do business. Franklin Junction platform can expand internationally, maybe a little easier than people that have to go build brick and mortar or actually go cook the food or and staff up and do those kind of things. We're able to find operating partners in many of these different countries around the world um, that basically license the Franklin Junction platform and then help grow with us in those markets. And so we've got partners in the, in, in the MENA region there, and we're working on expanding there later this year. You'll start seeing some things happening in Asia Pacific. And then uh, obviously we have a presence currently in the UK. We're looking at more expansion in Europe. And then Canada is is our neighbors and we've got some things in the works there. So again, it's been a long process. These are all conversations that have been in the works for a year and a half, two years. There is infrastructure set up that needs to happen for this to be successful. We want to be thoughtful on how we roll things out. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely very promising. There's a tremendous amount of demand around the world for our brand partners. And, and we figured out how to get many of them overseas uh, and, and let them get into new markets. Interesting. So, so it isn't necessarily sandbox. So it's like MENA restaurant group licenses to MENA host kitchens. It's U.S., IP getting licensed abroad on delivery marketplaces? No, I would say the first one. And like we would still be working directly with the operators and then we would have the relationship. So the same way that Franklin Junction exists here, it exists in other countries, but we'll have operating partners who basically, we're not setting up an office, right? It's not, Mm. it's not my team that is going to Dubai and, and launching restaurants, we would have somebody who already operates in that country, has supply mm. chain connections, is working with the delivery companies, understands what marketing works and what doesn't, has the contacts there. And then they would become part of Franklin Junction, you know, UAE, so to speak. Got it. Got it. So everything is kind of regional food and regional host kitchens that are fulfilling. That's that. right. That's right. Makes sense. That's right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean... I guess let's talk about the technology for a second. You mentioned DeliverAct. That that problem has been solved a million times over. You got Olo, you got DeliverAct, you got OrderMark with NextBite. They all have their own order injection and all the aggregation figured out. Where's the line between like what you take off the shelf and what's proprietary to what you you gonna do on an operational and tech kind of side? So there was quite a few things that we were using off the shelf and then slash about half of it that we were doing manually, which over the past year, we've really worked on either bringing in-house and automating processes. So the main reasons for that are, one, because what we do, I think, is extremely unique. Um, When you think about like the matchmaking between brands and host kitchens, that's something that's extremely complex. It's actually a patented process that we have. And we have, you know, an AI driven algorithm that actually shows us the compatibility score between a brand and a particular host kitchen. And that continues to improve as we grow and uh, create better and better matches, which is why I think our sales are unparalleled in this industry. DeliverAct helps us with the order management, but we do some of that ourselves in different applications as well. So there's a combination of in-house versus off-the-shelf. 
Um, we do have our own business intelligence. Um, we have some digital marketing platforms internally. We have automated accounting, which uh, takes all of the different sales from the different channels and um, sorts through, you know, who needs to get paid what. So we're handling all of that central accounting, I guess, for the platform. And then there's some other things that, you know, features that we haven't released yet that we're working on as well. But all of that allows us to, you know, really have a lot of control over the technology, the fidelity of the data, the cash flow, all of these things that make for a more efficient and partner-friendly platform. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I imagine a lot has to be kind of be built from scratch. And I kind of love that idea of the kind of AI-based uh, algorithm that gives you a score of, of the fit between the, the, the two sides there, the, the brand and the host kitchen. I guess like looking more at the tech and operational side of this, you know, looking at quality control, which has, I think, been a big topic in the industry lately, especially around virtual brands. When you start to license all over the world, like how do you what what's in place to make sure that there there is consistency and and that quality control is intact that the you know you're working with some pretty big partners like how do you make sure that the, the integrity is upheld throughout that entire process when we're dealing with so many different players and you know do you think tech can play a role in that as we've seen like you know new camera based AI that's going to like you know essentially monitor every single worker in the kitchen and make sure it's accurate from a, for, for every single order and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so it starts on the front end, right? I think that um, we're very uh, disciplined on who the host kitchens are that we bring on board. Um, we do site visits. We're in, you know, in-depth analysis of how they operate their current business, what sort of support is there, um, what their current standings are in terms of reviews with the health department, what their safety plans are, and, um, and, and HACCP plans on how they handle food safety. So I think we scrutinize quite a bit on the host kitchens that we believe are qualified to execute the food for our brand partners. I mean, we've turned down host kitchens that have over a thousand units nationwide. And yeah, that would be phenomenal for Franklin Junction, but it may break the system, right? If they don't do a great job operating. So, um, so I think we focus on people that we believe can really represent, you know, the food preparation, food safety, food handling at the level that we would do it if we were doing it ourselves. So that's really important. I think the second thing is that our ability to take a concept and make it easy to execute from the get-go, have great training materials, be able to provide training with our certified culinary team, you know, who's actually gone and trained on each of these concepts and then go provide that training. So combination of actually doing in-person trainings as well as virtual trainings have proven to be really successful. And then um, the third wheel of that is really the follow through, right? It's, you know, mystery shops, it's um, unannounced audits, it's making sure that host kitchens are performing the way we want them to, to, to do and that we're really rectifying any issues that may pop up that we see through, you know, guest complaints or otherwise. And what that results in is the fact that we've got hundreds of, you know, uh, these virtual restaurants around the country and we've got an aggregate guest review rating above a 4.2 across all sales channels, all brands, all host kitchens. And I think that's pretty phenomenal. Most brands, if you were to look at their, you know, portfolio of 
brick and mortar operations that they operate are probably not running a 4.2 in aggregate. So, so I think I'm really proud of the fact that we are selective and then we do a good job with the training and the follow through, but also control uh, how difficult or easy it is to execute a brand. So that, that all goes back to the matchmaking, right? Like it starts with that, like how well can you identify what makes a good match and set that up for success? That's really awesome to hear and, and impressive, especially when you're dealing with so many different kitchens. Um, that's quite a feat to pull off. I guess like looking at it from the brand side of like how, how you a successful brand scales, we have Ante in the audience who was asking, you know, what what is the path to scale of a successful virtual concept? Do you start in a few locations and then start to widen the the rollout and like iterate and like kind of talk maybe about how that all works? Yeah. So I think that uh, ultimately understanding who you're selling to and who your customer is extremely important. I always believe in rolling out slowly, right? You test it, you try a few more, try a few more and, and build your way up because the worst thing you want is churn, right? That you're you're turning off locations of a particular concept or you're going back or you exit a market that you've entered. You don't want that. You want sustainable growth. So, uh, you know, slow rollout's important. And I think the third thing that we really put deep emphasis on that we come across is, is supply chain uh, reliability, right? A lot of people want to grow. They want to grow in different markets or maybe an opportunity is in front of you to grow to a, you know, a dream amount of location. You may create a brand and say, hey, I can put this in 100 locations. I should go do it. But, um, but the supply chain may not be ready. So understanding your distribution, the cost of distribution and how to sustain that is really important because a lot of folks can't meet the, the demand that will then come with that rapid expansion. Yeah, I definitely want to pull in that thread a little bit more because that's definitely a key part here and we haven't talked too much about it. On the supply chain side for the food distributors, like how, how I'm, I'm assuming you have to set the, each host kitchen up with a new supplier. Um, and, and in many cases, in some cases, like you know, looking at um, Nathan's Famous, they've gotten pretty big into you know, uh, retail. So they have their own prepackaged hot dog links, which I'm sure makes it a lot simpler for someone to go and just heat that up. How many brands are working with their own kind of proprietary supply chains like that versus how much of it can be fulfilled through a Cisco or U.S. Foods, their existing supplier? Yeah. So um, contrary to popular belief, we usually do not set up new suppliers. We are supplier Mm -hmm. agnostic and we try to merge in as much with a host kitchen's existing suppliers as possible. Again, remember, we're restaurant people. We're not, you know, tech gurus. We're not creating virtual brands. We're not building ghost kitchens. Our job is to optimize the ability for creating incremental revenue for host kitchens. So however we can do that by minimizing variation, minimizing introducing new costs, minimizing introducing new processes, it's going to make us much more successful. So we try to merge in with them as much as possible. So that may be limited proprietary ingredients that could be doing a lot of homework on the back end. That's also why we're very, um, you know, discreet in the markets that we enter. You know, we go in with volume, right? And it serves serves us well, right? Like we won't launch a new concept in a new city if there's only one restaurant that can serve it. It puts a lot of supply chain pressure to get a specific product to a different city for one particular location. Instead, we'll launch 20 locations in a city and maybe the a bulk of them are doing the same concepts. And so now they can share uh, that inventory that we brought in there. So so that's that's important to us. 
And then, yeah, lastly, I would say that, you know, we, we really do emphasize on cost controls and understanding that there are a lot of price pressures that are out in the marketplace right now. And that's going to really right now dictate what brands, what concepts, you know, what suppliers are all going to fall in line uh, and be able to allow us to sell at a price that is um, going to be accepted by the market. Really interesting. Do you, do you have any way to kind of automatically change you know test the pricing and roll that out across all new markets or how is that how are you looking at at those kinds of increases and how frequently do you think you can do it you know dynamic pricing has been something that um, i think is a new a new unlock for this industry and we're seeing it with new companies like sauce which are integrated into deliveract as well do you think that this is something that you guys would have been playing around with yeah, we have been playing around with dynamic pricing. We can change pricing at you know the snap of a finger. I think it, it'll be interesting. I think it's going to take a little bit longer for people in our industry to accept variable pricing, but certainly I think there'll be an appetite for it eventually. I think the challenge with uh, dynamic pricing in the food and beverage industry versus you know flights or hotels or other you know industries that have done it successfully or sporting tickets for example uh, where we were doing it 20 years ago i think the challenge is there's a lot of substitutes available for restaurants right like if you want to fly from atlanta to paris there's like two flight options right and 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 so if there's dynamic pricing you're like whatever i gotta get to paris you know and so you deal with it um you want to stay in a particular hotel or a particular part of the city you deal with it but there might be a hundred restaurants available to you. So if you don't like the price, you mm. may you may change what you're buying. You may buy pizza from one of five other restaurants that does have a price that fits your budget or where you feel the value prop is really there. So I think that's going to be the challenging part. And and evidence of that is if you look at our insane inflation going on in this country right now, there is no way that restaurant prices could ever keep up with inflation because they would just lose the sales. And that's that's a primary example of where, you know, the threat of substitute options for your for your end user for your consumers yeah it's also it's really interesting to think about and then when there's so many costs involved in these virtual brands right we were going back to the five different players involved here you know adding inflation to to the mix is just another added cost on top of that yeah and i think there's that's why you know you really have to step up your game in terms of what you're delivering um you had mentioned you know nathan says hot dogs and grocery stores and stadiums and schools all over the country. I mean, I, I don't recall, but I believe it's like 38,000 points of distribution they have globally. There, wow. There's 38,000 spots around the world where you can find a Nathan's hot dog. But the hot dog that you get at the grocery store is not what we're selling through our host kitchens, right? What we're selling is a restaurant-grade, you know, premium mm. hot dog. It's not the one that you're buying for your backyard picnic. And I think that's when people come online and order, they're seeing the value of what you get for eight bucks for a hot dog or seven bucks for a hot dog versus what you're getting when you go buy six hot dogs or eight hot dogs for five bucks at the grocery store. So um, it's a larger hot dog. It might be a, um, you know, a hundred percent all beef hot dog. It could be, you know, uh, have better toppings, fresh bun, whatever it is. But, you know, we do things that present more of a restaurant quality item. And that's, that's what allows us to capture that customer. I'm, I'm, as we kind of come up on our time here, I'm, I'm curious, like, 
if you think about all the different avenues, all the different channels that are available to restaurant brands, right? We, we have retail, like we just discussed. We have ghost kitchens. We have host kitchens. We have dine-in restaurants, drive-through, to-go, pick-up. You know, how do you think new brands starting today in 2022 will leverage these host kitchens? And what do you think the trajectory is going to be for building a successful brand? And how does this infrastructure come into play? And most importantly, when does it come into play? At what phase of growth? I do think that you're already seeing maybe some direct-to-consumer brands or direct-to-kitchen brands, as it may be. I don't know. But you're going to see successful brands that can exist only virtually. Um, we've seen it with retail, right? And and I think food services is right behind retail. We're a little more nascent stage, uh, but I, I very much think that's that's possible. But I do think that it's extremely expensive. There's a longer curve because you're building up demand, you're introducing your product, you have to create a story uh, for that long-term success. And when you have a brick and mortar brand or something that's been around a while, something that has vetted out its new, you know, its nuances that has uh, built some reliability on supply chain that understands its customer and knows, you know, what price points work for it, has a proven out menu, there's, there's ultimately a leg up there. And what drives that is your consumer interactions, right? And so whether you do it virtually or you build a brick and mortar, ultimately what you're looking at is what's going to get me the most amount of you know, feedback so I can get the iterations I need uh, to, to, to make this a successful concept. And, I think you know, I think it'll be interesting to just see how we evolve there and, and what else comes out. But, uh, you know, we still hedge our bets with, with the brands that have a story that we can sell. We think people are looking for an experience. They're looking to connect to something more than just food. And, uh, and that's what our brand partners can offer. Interesting. So it sounds like the host kitchens really come into play at like kind of a growth scale phase where I've already kind of done a lot of the legwork and figuring out who my customer is. And now I can like kind of take that profile of that customer and kind of hand it to someone like you and you say, okay, here are the markets where th- those kind those demographics are, are kind of most prevalent. Yep, that's right. We call them lookalikes, right? So we know what, what works and with a particular brand and we're looking for the lookalikes. Yeah, interesting. Just like Facebook, uh, kind of lookalike targeting and and that sort of thing. It's it's uh, yeah, you got fascinating it. to see the pro the 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 analogies come to light here. Well, this has been a really awesome conversation. I've learned a lot, Rishi. Thank you for your time. I mean, we have different people who are going to be tuning into this podcast who are, you know, on both sides of the marketplace. Right? We have plenty of uh, people operating kitchens, and we got people starting brands. If anyone wants to get in touch, how they do that. And yeah, now's your time to kind of plug away whatever you want to plug. Absolutely. Uh, anybody can reach us at info at franklinjunction.com. And we regularly post updates with new partners um, and just insider information on how the virtual restaurant industry and restaurant e-commerce in general is growing on our LinkedIn page. So you can follow us there and also find me if you want to get a hold of me directly. I'll be on LinkedIn. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Rishi. It's been awesome and uh, best of luck with everything. We'll be following closely. Thanks, Matt. Enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.